Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of God Honest Truth live stream. We are God Honest Truth Ministry, and we are a Messianic ministry based out of Western North Carolina. You can find out more about us at GodHonestTruth.com. There you can find out more information not only about the ministry, but you can find information and resources to help you in your walk in the faith, in your education, also in your Hebrew learning, historical research, all kinds of things, audio Bibles. So go check it out. You can find our video platforms, our social media networking links, our audio podcast links, and much, much more. You can also find out how to contact us. And of course, the easiest way to contact us is through email at team at GodHonestTruth.com. Now, tonight's drosh is all going to be about a lady who served her people, had great courage, and ended up being the hero of the story. This all comes from the book of Esther, and her name, consequently, is Esther, or what other people know her as, as Hadassah. Tonight is the story in the teaching all about Purim. So make sure to stay tuned for that. And as always, we're going to be doing the liturgy, the Torah portion, the Haftorah portion, and the Brit Hadashah portion. So with all that being out of the way, let's go ahead and get down to our liturgy. Kohod balevav pahanihima Nefesh Yehudi ahomiya Ufateh misrag kahadihima Ayin lezion sofiya Olo avda tikvatehenu Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod, Malchuto, Leolam Vayed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is for eternity. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And have these words which I command you this day be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and let them be frontless between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates.
So I just want to take a moment to remind everyone that we are still in the works to live stream to Rumble as well. I know a lot of you really like the whole Rumble platform and we need to do some more testing before going live on that. But that is in the works, so stay tuned for that also. Just want to also remind everyone that we have audio podcasts going as well. If you're not listening on audio podcast platforms and you prefer the audio portion or, or audio format rather than video, then look for us on your favorite audio podcasting platform, whether that be iHeartRadio, iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play Music, Spotify, and much, much more. You can find all those links on our website at GodHonestTruth.com. Now, like I said, tonight is going to be about Purim for tonight's teaching. So if you don't know about Purim or if you'd like to learn more, definitely make sure to stay tuned for tonight's teaching. Next week, we're going to be getting into a teaching on the roles of men and women from a biblical perspective. Now, this is probably going to be, I'll just say it, whittled down because there is so much to say about the roles of a man and woman in a biblical marriage. But we're going to get in as much as we can next week. And, of course, next week is just like every other week. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday evenings. And if you'll look down through the list here, it's about the list of episodes for somewhere around the next two months or so. And all of those are going to be on Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, of course, our next upcoming feast day is going to be Purim. And that starts at sunset on March 6th and goes through sunset of March 7th. And here's a list of your next upcoming feast days or Muadim up through Hanukkah of this year. So now you've got a list, you know when they are, and that way you can be ready for them. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about any particular feast day, make sure to tune in to the God Honest Truth episode for that feast day, which occurs about two weeks or so before the start of the feast day itself. And as always, if you have any prayer requests or announcements that you would like to have announced live on air, make sure to have those in to us by Thursday evening at the latest. Or if you would just like to for us to pray with you and for you privately, you can email that to us at any time and we'll just pray for you and put you on our prayer list, but we won't put it up on the prayer list of announcements. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and get back to our liturgy. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. He walked among us, filled with your Spirit. The only one who ever perfectly fulfilled your Torah, he healed the sick and raised the dead. The multitudes of our people sought his touch. He taught as no man taught. With authority he brought forth the treasures of the Torah. How the children he sought, the lepers he touched and made clean. How the despised and outcast found love and release from their sin. How the hypocrites feared him, whose words uncovered their sin. Despised and rejected, acquainted with grief, he bore the sins of Israel. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, turned every one to his own way. The sin, Our iniquities were laid upon the king, the sins of the world, his burden to bear. He rose from the dead and opened the way to life everlasting. Praise his name. We are in him. His spirit empowers. New life is ours with joy and peace. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who has given us Messiah our King. 
For the sake of our Master Yeshua, and His merit and virtues, may the sayings of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be favorable before you, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. Amen. Avinu Shabashamayim Yikadesh Shimcha Tavo Mehutecha Yesa Retzonecha Baaretz Kaashir Naasa Vashamayim Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let thy kingdom come, let thy will be done, as on earth, so as in heaven. Ten Lanu Hayom Lechem Hukenu Usalach lanu et ashmatenu ka asher. Solechim anachnu la asher ashmulanu. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Ve'al tevienu lide masa, ki'im hatzilenu min hara. Ki lacha, hamam lacha, v'hagavura, v'hatifaret, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. None can compare to you, O Lord, and nothing compares to your creation. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your mercy endures throughout all generations. The Lord is king. The Lord was king. The Lord shall be king throughout all time. May the Lord grant his people mercy. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt him together. And it came to pass, whenever the ark went forth, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. May those who hate you flee from before you. For from Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Blessed be he who in holiness gave the Torah to his people Israel. All right, and tonight's Torah portion is going to be Exodus chapter 34, verse 27 through chapter 36, verse 38. And like always, we'll give you just a moment to find that in your preferred translation if you'd like to read along with us at home. Exodus chapter 34 verse 27 through chapter 36 verse 38. And Yahweh said to Moshe, Write these words, for according to the mouth of these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with Yahweh forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread and he did not drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words. And it came to be, when Moshe came down from Mount Sinai, while the two tablets of the witness were in Moshe's hand, when he came down from the mountain, 
that Moshe did not know that the skin of his face shone since he had spoken with him. And Aaron and all the children of Israel looked at Moshe and saw the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moshe called out to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moshe spoke to them. And afterward all the children of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moshe ended speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moshe went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he spoke to the children of Israel what he had been commanded. And the children of Israel would see the face of Moshe, that the skin of Moshe's face shone. And Moshe would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. And Moshe assembled all the congregation of the children of Israel and said to them, These are the words which Yahweh has commanded you to do. Work is done for six days, but on the seventh day it shall be set apart to you, a Sabbath of rest to Yahweh. Anyone doing work on it is put to death. Do not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moshe spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the word which Yahweh commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to Yahweh. Everyone whose heart so moves him, let him bring it as a contribution to Yahweh. Gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and fine leather and acacia wood and oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense and shohem stones and stones to be set in the shoulder garment and in the breastplate. And let all the wise-hearted among you come and make all that Yahweh has commanded, the dwelling place, its tent, and its covering, its hooks, and its boards, its bars, its columns, and its sockets, the ark, and its poles, the lid of atonement, and the veil of the covering, the table, and its poles, and all its utensils, and the showbread, and the lampstand for the light, and its utensils, and its lamps, and the oil for the light and the incense slaughter place, and its poles, and the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, and the covering for the door at the entrance of the dwelling place, the slaughter place of ascending offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the screens of the courtyard, its columns and their sockets, and the covering for the gate of the courtyard, the pegs of the dwelling place, and the pegs of the courtyard, and their cords, the woven garments to do service in the set-apart place, the set-apart garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to serve as priest. And all the congregation of the children of Israel withdrew from the presence of Moshe, and every one whose heart lifted him up, and every one whose spirit moved him, came, and they brought the contribution to Yahweh for the work of the tent of appointment, and for all its service, and for the set-apart garments." And they came, both men and women, all whose hearts moved them, and brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces, all golden goods, even every one who made a wave offering of gold to Yahweh. And every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and fine leather brought them. Every one who would make a contribution to Yahweh of silver or bronze brought it. 
and everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. And all the wise-hearted women spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun, the blue and the purple, the scarlet material, and the fine linen. And all the women whose hearts lifted them up in wisdom spun the goat's hair. And the rulers brought shoham stones and the stones to be set in the shoulder garment and in the breastplate and the spices and the oil for the light and for the sweet anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a voluntary offering to Yahweh, all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring all kinds of work, which Yahweh by the hand of Moshe had commanded to be done. And Moshe said to the children of Israel, See, Yahweh has called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda, and he has filled him with the spirit of Elohim, in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all work, to make designs to work in gold, and in silver, and in bronze, and in cutting of stones for setting, and in carving wood, and to work in all workmanship of design. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach, in him and Oholiab, son of Ahishamech, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all work of the engraver and the designer and embroiderer in blue and in purple, in scarlet material, and in fine linen, and a weaver doing any work in makers of designs. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whom Yahweh has given wisdom and understanding to know how to do all work for the service of the set-apart place shall do according to all that Yahweh has commanded. And Moshe called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man in, whom, in whose heart Yahweh had given wisdom, every one whose heart lifted him up to come and do the work. And they received from Moshe all the contribution which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the set-apart place. But they still brought to him voluntary offerings every morning. So all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the set-apart place came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moshe, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which Yahweh commanded us to do. Then Moshe commanded, and they sent this word throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the contribution of the set-apart place. And the people were withheld from bringing for what they had was enough for all the work to be done, more than enough. Then all the wise-hearted ones among them, who worked on the dwelling place, made ten curtains woven of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. They made them with cherubim, the work of a skilled workman. The length of each curtain was twenty-eight cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits, and all the curtains having one measure." And he joined five curtains one to another, and the other five curtains he joined one to another. And he made loops of blue on the edge of the end curtain of one set, the same he did on the edge of the end curtain of the other set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the end curtain of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another, and he made fifty hooks of gold and joined the curtains to each other, with the hooks, and the dwelling place became one. And he made curtains of goat's hair. For the tent over the dwelling place, he made eleven curtains. The length of each curtain was thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain was four cubits, the eleven curtains having one measure. And he joined five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, 
and he made 50 loops on the edge of the end curtain in one set and 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain of the second set. He made 50 bronze hooks to join the tent to be one. And he made a covering for the tent of ram skins, dyed red, and a covering of fine leather above that. And for the dwelling place he made boards of acacia wood standing up. The length of each board was ten cubits, and the width of each board a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding one to another, so he did to all the boards of the dwelling place. And he made boards for the dwelling place, twenty boards for the south side, and he made forty sockets of silver to go under the twenty boards, and two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the other side of the dwelling place, for the north side, he made twenty boards, and there are forty sockets of silver, two sockets under the one board, and two sockets under the other board. And he made six boards for the west side of the dwelling place, and he made two boards for the two back corners of the dwelling place. And they were double beneath, and similarly they were complete to the top by one ring. So he did to both of them for the two corners. And there were eight boards, and their silver sockets, sixteen sockets, two sockets under each of the boards, and he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the dwelling place, and five bars for the boards on the other side of the dwelling place, and five bars for the boards of the dwelling place at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other, and he overlaid the boards with gold, and their rings he made of gold to be holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. And he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine-worked linen. It was made with cherubim, the work of a skilled workman. And he made four columns of acacia wood for it, and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. And he made a covering for the tent door of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine-woven linen made by a weaver, and his five columns with their hooks, and he overlaid their tops and their rings with gold, but their five sockets were of bronze. Orukata Yahweh Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asherinatan Lanu Torah Temet, Bechaye Olam Betukenum, Borukata Yahweh, Noten Ha Torah. Amen. This is the Torah which Moses placed before the children of Israel. It is in accord with the Lord's command by the hand of Moses. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come. Renew our days as of old. Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-
Shameinu, Adeshameinu, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen faithful prophets to speak words of truth. Amen. All right, and tonight's Haftorah portion is going to be Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 40. And once again, we'll give you just a moment to find that in your preferred translation at home. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 40. See, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I shall make a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehuda, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I strengthened their hand to bring them out of the land of Mitzrayim. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. <clears throat> I shall put my Torah in their inward parts and write it on their hearts. I shall be their Elohim and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I shall forgive their crookedness and remember their sin no more. Thus said Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the laws of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these laws vanish from before me, declares Yahweh, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus said Yahweh, if the heavens above could be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I would also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. See, see the days are coming, declares Yahweh, that the city shall be built for Yahweh from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall extend straight ahead to the hill Gareb, and it shall turn toward Goah. And all the valley of the dead bodies, and of the ashes, and all the fields as far as the wadi Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate, toward the east, is to be set apart to Yahweh. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe who has given us the living word in Messiah Yeshua. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the renewed covenant. Amen. Right, and tonight's Brit Hadashah portion is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. And one last time, we'll give you just a moment to find that in your preferred translation at home. First Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 13. 
And concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not wish you to be ignorant. You know that you were nations led away to the dumb idols, even as you might be led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of Elohim says Yeshua is a curse, and that no one is able to say that Yeshua is master except by the set-apart spirit. And there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of services, but the same master. And there are different kinds of workings, but it is, it is the same Elohim who is working all in all. And to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for profiting. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another belief by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, and to another operations of powers, and to another prophecy, and to another discerning of spirits, and to another kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these, distributing to each one individually as he intends. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is the Messiah. For indeed, by one Spirit we were all immersed into one body, whether Yehudim or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink into one spirit. Orukata Yahweh Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu HaDevar HaEmet Vechaye Olam Betukenu Orukata Yahweh Noten Habrit Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who gave to us the word of truth and planted life everlasting in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the renewed covenant. Amen. So in just a moment, we'll be getting to tonight's drosh all about Purim. So definitely make sure to stay tuned for that. We're going to take just a short break and check on our current live streams, make sure everything is going great for tonight. And while we're doing that, <coughs> there are some people who say that we should not celebrate any holidays or feast days that are not specifically mentioned in the Torah. Things like Hanukkah or Purim, we should only celebrate the other specifically designated holidays like Pesach or Passover, Shavuot, Yom Kippurim, Yom Teruah, Sukkot, things like that. Let us know, what is it you think about celebrating these holidays that are not specifically designated in the Torah? Things like Purim. What's your take on it? Let us know down in the comments below. And while you're down there, make sure to also hit that like button and hit that subscribe button as well as ring the bell. That way you're notified every time that we go live or upload a new on-demand video. And also hit that share button and share it around with your friends, your family, your coworkers, or who have you. Because odds are, right now, if you are watching this, then someone that you know would enjoy this type of content also. So go ahead and hit that share it button and share it through social media, text messaging, email, or what have you. So, let's get tonight's drosh up and going. So like I said, this teaching is going to be all about the Feast of Purim. 
And even though it's not one of the seven established Moedim that's found in the Torah, it's still a feast day observed by many of today's both Jews and Messianics and others as well, because it celebrates the power and the glory and the majesty of Yahweh. Now, there's a lot of interesting things to get into here in this teaching, and it's going to take a while. There's many, many dozens of slides to get through and lots and lots of information as well as lots and lots of scripture. So definitely stay tuned for all of this. Have your notebook ready. And if you happen to miss anything, please be sure to check back starting tomorrow morning and you'll see the entire live stream and episode up for this drosh and you can catch up on anything that you may have missed. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get into our drosh for tonight. Okay, first things first, we're going to start out with a little bit of foundation to set up the whole set and story of Purim. Uh, first, we get into some stuff about the background of what's going on, some history, some of the characters involved. So definitely have your notebooks out and ready for this. First thing we're going to get into is what's called the casting of lots. Now, Purim is called the Feast of Lots, and Purim itself is actually a Persian word meaning lots. It's not the Hebrew word for lots, but it's a Persian word for lots. Now, casting lots is something that was done by both Yahweh's people and everyone around them in the Middle Eastern area. And according to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, they say that we do know that people of the Old Testament and New Testament, we'll get into that in just a little bit, believe God or gods, as in the case of non-Israelites or non-Christians, influence the fall or outcome of the lots. Thus, casting lots was a way of determining God's will. It was a way of divination both for Yahweh's people and for those who weren't Yahweh's people. As we see in Exodus 28.30, and into the breastplate of right ruling, you shall put the Urim and the Tumim, and they shall be on the heart of Aaron when he goes in before Yahweh. And Aaron shall bear the right ruling of the children of Israel on his heart before Yahweh continually. Now this Urim and Thumim were a couple of things that were used to cast lots with back when we still had the Urim and the Thumim. Numbers 27-21 and he is to stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before Yahweh for him by the right ruling of the Urim. See there? At his word they go out, and at his word they come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. Now, this was set up while they were still in the wilderness, but when they come into the land of Israel, the promised land, the land itself was divided up by casting lots. Numbers 26, 52-56 And Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, The land is to be divided to these as an inheritance, according to the number of names. To the large one you give a larger inheritance, and to the small one you give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to their registered ones, but the land is divided by lot. They inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance is divided between the larger and the smaller. So after they got into the promised land, they were each divided according to tribe what land they were to receive by casting lots. Again, Joshua 14, 2. Their inheritance was by lot, 
as Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moshe for the nine tribes and the half-tribe. Now, this is not the only time we see the casting of lots being done by Yahweh's people. It was actually done at least on a yearly basis, and this was done every Yom Kippurim to decide which of the two goats that were brought to the high priest would be the scapegoat. Ex- I'm sorry, Leviticus 16, 7-10. And he shall take the two goats and let them stand before Yahweh at the tent, I'm sorry, at the door of the tent of appointment. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the lot for Yahweh fell and shall prepare it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for Azazel fell is caused to stand alive before Yahweh to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness to Azazel. So not only was casting lots something that did happen, it was actually something that was commanded to happen. It was a part of the ceremony every Yom Kippurim, the Day of Atonements, right? As we go on in Scripture, we're even told that Yahweh directs the decision or what happens with the casting of lots. We look in six. I'm sorry, Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision by it is from Yahweh. Interesting, huh? Now, here's where it gets sort of into the interesting kind of thing. We'll get into Messiah and Purim in a little bit, but check this out. When they divided up, well, back up a little bit. For a time, there were just a right enough amount of priests to take care of all the stuff with the tent of appointment, the tabernacle, and the temple. But eventually, the tribe of Levi got large, and there were lots and lots of priests and people that were to take care of it. So they had to divide up what was to be done and by who and when. Now, this was decided by casting lots. First Chronicles 24, verses 5 and 10. And they were divided by lot one group as another, for there were officials of the set-apart place and officials of Elohim, from the sons of Eleazar and from the sons of Ithamar, the seventh to Hakotz and the eighth to Abiyah. Now, this Abiyah, or the order of Abiyah, right, that priestly order, maybe some of you remember this. Maybe it's striking a chord already. But if not, let me refresh your memory real quick, because this is where it connects to. Luke 1, 8 through 9. And it came to be that while he was serving as priest before Elohim in the order of his division, according to the institute of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to burn incense when he went into the dwelling place of Yahweh. Well, who are we talking about here? This is the priest Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And he was chosen through the casting of lots. He was uh, of the division of Abiyah, remember? And because of this casting of lots and dividing of the priestly duties, he happened to be in the priest, I'm sorry, in the temple, serving his time, as it were, at a certain point in history. 
And if you remember right after this verse or this section in Luke, he is told of the pending birth of John the Baptist and all that, right? The prophetic thing. And then he's struck with muteness for a time, but it all kind of starts falling into order here. So the land of Israel was divided up by casting lots. Proverbs tells us that Yahweh directs the outcome of the casting of lots. The division of the priest were decided by casting of lots. And because of that casting of lots and how they fell, Zechariah was serving in the temple at a certain point in time. And that led up to the pronouncement of John the Baptist. Now, it wasn't just the righteous that did the casting of lots. It was also the unrighteous. And if you remember, this happened with Yeshua's clothing after he was crucified. Matthew 27, 35. And having impaled him, they divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be filled what was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, this was already foretold, this exact thing. They would divide up his garments according to the casting of lots. Now, this wasn't done just, I'm sorry, this casting of lots wasn't just done in the Tanakh, nor was it only just done in the early part of the Brit Hadashah. Even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, they were still casting lots. The righteous were still casting lots to determine things. One of these things that they determined by casting lots was to decide who was going to take the place of Judas Iscariot after his death. Acts 1.26 And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matiahu, and he was numbered with the eleven emissaries. So, after Judas Iscariot died, they went and decided to choose a twelfth disciple or apostle or emissary. And they did it just by casting lots, and the lot fell on someone named Matiyahu. Very, very interesting. Now, the Hebrew word for lot is goral. Okay, that is the actual Hebrew word to use, find, used throughout the Tanakh. However, we get the word purim from the Persian word pur, or pur, right? The plural being purim lots. And that's why it's called Purim because it happened in Persia and there's a lot of Persian things happening and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So the feast is called Purim. So that is a little bit behind the whole thing of casting of lots. There's definitely a whole lot more that could go into it, but we're trying to keep the scope here and about the feast of Purim. So narrowed it down a little bit. Please, by all means, feel free to do your own research and your own study on this whole subject of casting of lots. And if you find out something new and interesting, please be sure to contact us and let us know. Remember, you can always write us at team at godhonesttruth.com. So now we move on to the star of the story. And this is Hadassah, or better known by her Persian name that she took, Esther. Now, Hadassah, or Esther, was actually a Benjamite of the tribe of Benjamin, right? But since she came from the southern kingdom of Judea, she was referred to also as a Judean or a Jew. That's one of the meanings for the term Jew is Judean, 
right, from the southern kingdom of Judea. She was also the first cousin of Mordecai, which we will talk about in just a moment. But the word Hadassah comes from Strong's H1919, Hadassah, Hadassah. All right, and it means, well, myrtle, actually. So not too much prophetic or deep meaning here, but it is still kind of interesting. We get the word Esther from Strong's H635, and this comes from a Persian name or a Persian word. Now, Esther actually means something like star or celestial being. And like you see on the screen here in the definition, it was the name of the Persian queen, which came after Vashti in the story of Purim. But Esther means star, which is fitting because Esther is the star of the Purim story. So remember, we mentioned her cousin, her first cousin, Mordecai, <coughs> and that's Mardechai. Mardechai. Interesting how words and names change over the years. But anyways, like Esther or Hadassah, Mardechai was also a Benjamite or someone from the tribe of Benjamin. But like Esther or Hadassah, he was also a Judean or a Jew. Now, throughout the story of Purim, he's at odds with a man named Haman. We'll get in more into that when we get into the story of Purim, so you'll understand more about that. But this, this is just an overview. Like we said, he's the first cousin of Esther, and after her parents died and Esther became an orphan, Mordecai raised Esther. He adopted her and brought her up since she did not have a family after her parents died, obviously. The word or name Mardachai comes from Strong's H4782. And again, not much meaning to this name as you would find in other names, but that tends to be kind of a theme here with what's going on with Purim, the whole issue of secrecy, which will come up more in the story of Purim as well. But, some have speculated that this name Mardukai actually comes from the name Marduk, which is a pagan god, but more research needs to be done into that as well. Now, what Mardukai did throughout his entire life was serving Yahweh and doing the commands of Scripture. Now, one of the things that's commanded in Scripture is to take care of the fatherless, the widows, and the orphans, okay? Esther definitely fit into that category, and Mordecai filled that role and that command like it said. Now, we find in the Brit Hadashah, in James 1.27, it says, Clean and undefiled religion before the Elohim and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this command to take care of widows and orphans and the fatherless is not something that just comes out of nowhere in the Brit Hadashah. This actually comes from the Tanakh, believe it or not. Look at Exodus 22.22. Do not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Again, Deuteronomy 10.18. 
He executes right ruling for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and garment. Again, Psalms 10, 17 through 18. You have heard the desire of the lowly ones. You have prepared their heart. You incline your ear to defend the fatherless and the downtrodden so that man who is of the earth no longer oppresses. And yet again, Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and right ruler of widows is Elohim in his set-apart dwelling. And we keep going. Psalms 82, 3. Give right ruling to the poor and fatherless. Do not, I'm sorry, do right to the afflicted and the needy. So, we can see here that Yahweh himself has a heart for the widows and the fatherless. We saw that also being stated again in the Brit Hadashah, and up to the point of Purim in history, Mordechai would have known this as well. He was a student of the word, and he definitely knew what was going on and how Yahweh felt toward the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows. This is exactly what he did when he adopted and raised Hadassah or Esther. So Mordechai is definitely a righteous man, a good man. So he is, oh, what's the word for it? Protagonist? Yeah, protagonist of the story, along with the star Esther. Now let's look into just a little bit about Ahasuerosh. And this is the king of Persia at the time of the story of Purim. Now, King Ahasuerosh is actually a title more than it is a name because it's actually also known as Xerxes or Xerxes the first. He was the son of Darius the Great and he actually went about constructing or doing many large construction projects throughout the Persian Empire or the empire as it was at that time. It may not be as large as we would think of as an empire today, but back during that time it was fairly large, comparatively speaking. Now, Ahasuerosh comes from Strong's H325, and pretty much like we've already told you, it's referring to what we, who we know of now as Xerxes, or Xerxes I, king of Persia during the time of Purim. This is for all you nerds out there. I'm definitely not reading all this for you. But, like I said, and repeatedly say, if you're someone like me who likes to take notes, this is coming from a part of my notes that I have taken on this subject of Purim. Now, we talked about the protagonist and the star, Mordechai and Esther. Now let's get into the antagonist. Remember at that time. His name is Haman. And he actually comes from the lineage of the Amalekites. We'll get all into that in a minute, just in case you don't remember. Now, Haman, as you may have picked up, was constantly at odds during the story of Purim with Mordechai. He was actually fairly prominent in Persia. He rose to be second in command of all of Persia. The only person who was over him was King Ashwarash. He was an Agagite which comes from the Amalekites. And his name comes from Strong's H2001, Haman. 
And his name really means like alone, solitary, by himself, stuff like that. So again, not much meaning or significance to the meaning of the name. See, we've found that theme already so far, but more to come. So like I mentioned, Haman was actually from the lineage of the Amalekites. Now, if you don't remember who the Amalekites are, let's back up a little bit in history and take a good review. We see the starting of the Amalekites with the birth of Amalek, Genesis 36, 12. And Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. Yeah, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, who Eliphaz was Esau's son. So Amalek is the grandson of Esau, who was the brother of Isaac. No, I'm sorry, Jacob. Wow, I really can't think tonight. Anyways, the grandson of Esau and the, I guess you would say, great grandnephew of Jacob. Anyways, that's the start of Amalek and the Amalekites. Now, the reason why the Amalekites were so hated and so despised is because when the Israelites or the Hebrews came out of Egypt on the Passover, right, in the Exodus, the Amalekites were the first ones to attack and utterly harass the Hebrews as they were headed into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Exodus 17, 8. And Amalek, more correctly the Amalekites, came and fought with Yisrael in Rephidim. And these were the first ones to just attack the Hebrews unprovoked. There was no reason for them to attack the Hebrews. Okay? And because of this, it stirred up Yahweh's wrath against the Amalekites. And because his wrath was stirred up against them, he later told the Israelites to completely annihilate and utterly, utterly destroy the Amalekites. Deuteronomy 25:19. Therefore it shall be, when Yahweh your Elohim has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which Yahweh your Elohim has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. Do not forget. All right, so completely blot them out. Then in 1 Samuel 15, 2 through 3. Thus said Yahweh of hosts, I shall punish Amalek for what he did to Yisrael, how he set himself against him on the way when he came up from Mitzrayim, or Egypt. Now go, and you shall strike Amalek, and put under the ban all that he has, and you shall not spare them, and put to death from man to woman, from infant to nursing child, from ox to sheep, from camel to donkey. So they would destroy every one of the Amalekites. From the old to the young, to the male to the female, to the adult to the child, and the animals as well. Okay, and this is during the time of King Saul that this particular passage is going out. So it's been a little while since the Exodus story happened. But still, Yahweh remembers and gave the command to completely annihilate the Amalekites. But, unfortunately, King Saul did not do that. 
1 Samuel 15, 8 through 9. And he caught Agag, sovereign of the Amalekites, alive, and put under the ban all the people with the edge of the sword. But Shaul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good, and would not put them under the ban. But all goods despised and worthless they put under the ban. So King Saul spared some of the people and the good things that were you know, pleasant to the eye, things that they wanted, they kept that. They didn't destroy that. But the ugly things, the things they had despised, the things they didn't want, they destroyed all of that. They did not do what Yahweh told them to do. And because there was a lineage of the Amalekites that survived, that came down to the person of Haman. And even Haman continues the hatred of the Amalekites toward the Hebrews. And in the story of Purim, towards the tribe of Benjamin. The Benjamites, Mordechai, especially Mordechai, and Esther. So now, that brings us into the Purim story. So, here is the continuation of the foundations or the framework behind the story of Purim. Now, after King Solomon, remember you had the first king, Saul, and then you had King David, and David had a son named Solomon. And after King Solomon died, the nation of Israel was divided up into two parts. There was a northern kingdom, sometimes referred to as Israel, and then there was the southern kingdom, referred to as Judea. However, both of these kingdoms had periods where they would do good and periods where they would do bad. They kind of yo-yoed. These were both the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. But eventually, the Northern Kingdom was driven away and defeated by the Assyrians. And as a result, they never returned to their land. They were dispersed amongst the nations, even until this day. However, the Southern Kingdom, or Judea, was conquered by Babylon, subsequently Persia, and taken into captivity. However, after 70 years in Babylonian captivity, a lot of them, the Judeans, or referred to sometimes as Jews, returned to the land of Israel. But some of them didn't. Not all of them didn't. Some of them chose to stay in Babylon or in Persia. So this is where the book of Ezra speaks of the return to Israel. You can find this in Ezra 4.6. And it actually mentions the king or the title of the king of the Purim story. Now, the Purim story itself covers a period of about 10 years or so. This is just an approximate date, but usually goes between 483 and 473 BCE. So Purim's story covers somewhat of a 10-year period. This takes place in the city of Susa, or what we sometimes refer to as Sushan. And this, for your reference, is where Susa, or Sushan, is located. And that would be modern-day Iran, maybe? I uh, really should have overlaid that. But yeah, this is where the story of Purim takes place. Now, 
During the time of King Ashwarash, he ends up throwing a six-month feast, right? Lots of eating, lots of drinking, lots of partying. A six-month feast. But after that six-month feast, he then again throws a seven-day feast. Imagine that. So all his generals, all his buddies, everyone's there partying and feasting, having a good old time. Well, at one point, King Ashwarash commands that his queen, Vashti, come to the party where he's at and show everyone how beautiful she is and to dance for them, right? But King Vashti wasn't having none of it. She utterly refused, told him, no, I'm not coming and putting myself on display or whatever it is she might have said. But suffice it to say, she disobeyed the king's order. Very, very not good. So, as a result, King Ashwarash deposes her as queen, right? Just kicks her out. So now the king is left without a queen. And in order to find a new queen, they do pretty much like a beauty pageant and they search for a new queen. They bring in all the lovely women of marriageable status for the king to choose. And one of these women they bring in is the Hebrew Hadassah, right? But when she goes into this search for a new queen, she takes on and uses the name Esther instead. And that's where we get the word Esther from. However, Yahweh looked and had favor upon her because he knew what was going to be happening and he put her in a certain place for a certain purpose, like he does with most of us. So keep that in mind too as we go through the Purim story. And because of this, Esther is chosen as the new queen of all Persia. So she ascends to the throne. She gets married to King Ashwarash. Some time passes. And soon after Esther is chosen as the new queen, the her cousin, sometimes referred to as uncle, Mardukai, is out in the city going about his daily business, and he hears a plot to overthrow and kill the king. Now, he goes to Esther and tells her about the plot, who then goes to the king and tells the king about the plot. Things are looked into, it's investigated, it's discovered that it's true. They find the conspirators, they kill the conspirators, obviously for treason and attempted regicide. And all of this is given credit to Mardukai for saving the king's life. And it's all written down in the book of the Chronicles of the King, the Royal Chronicles, right? Which is important to remember because that will come into play later on. However, Mardukai, it is not recorded as being uh, rewarded when this happens. So keep that in mind as well. So then, soon after this event happens, the person we referred to earlier, Haman, right? The one that's at odds. This is where he starts to become at odds with Mardukai. Haman is promoted to the number two position in all of Persia. The only person who's above Haman is the king, King Ashwarash. 
Now, the king actually commanded that everyone in the kingdom bow down and give reverence to Haman because he's of such high status and has command and all that good stuff. However, Mordechai, being the righteous person he is, righteous and Yahweh-fearing person he is, absolutely refuses to bow down to Haman. Now, we don't know if Mordechai knew that Haman was an Amalekite. Maybe he did. Maybe it was some tension because of that. But suffice it to say that Mordechai did not bow down to Haman. And this caused Haman to get very, very angry, right? It bruised his ego, so to speak. Now, after Haman and Mordechai start their little sort of tiff and feud, Haman discovers and finds out that Mordechai is a Jew. So now Haman has hatred for the Judeans. And so he sets out and he develops this plot to kill all of the Judeans. And in order to find out when he's going to kill out, I'm sorry, to kill all the Judeans, he cast lots. So remember, it wasn't just one particular group during that time that was casting lots to divine things. It was everyone. And Haman cast lots to decide when he was going to annihilate all of the Judeans because of his hatred towards Mordechai. Now remember, lots in Persian was the word poor or porim. So because Haman cast lots or porim to find out when to kill all the Judeans, that's why we have the name Purim for the festival or feast of Purim. So, not long after this, Mordechai finds out about this plot that Haman has come up with to kill all the Judeans. Now, they're skipping over a lot here, but anyways, between the time that Haman plots the death of the Judeans and the time that Mordechai finds out about the plot, Haman has gone to the king, gotten the king to go along with it, not really telling him all the details, but he got the king to go along with it. It was set in stone, and then not even the king himself would be able to overturn this. And then Mordechai finds out about the plot, and he goes and he tells Esther about what's going on, just like he did before with the plot to kill the king. However, Esther is afraid to go into the king to let him know about it and plead for his help because, number one, you don't go in front of the king of Persia uninvited, right? To do so would risk your life. The king could have you killed just for going in front of him without permission, without being invited. So this made Esther afraid for many reasons. So, she thinks and she prays and she comes up with this plan and she tells Mordechai to go and tell everyone to fast for three days and that she herself will also fast. And at the end of that three days, she'll go in front of the king and start this process. So they do that. They fast for three days, including Esther. And in the three days, she goes in front of the king and her life is spared. However, 
she tells the king that she wants to throw a feast or a supper for both him and Haman, and that she will let the king know what her request is at the feast. So they go to the feast, they have a good time, and then the king asks her what her request is, what she would petition for, and that he would give her even whatever she wanted up until up into half the kingdom, right? Pretty good offer so far. But Esther tells him, well, you and Haman come back tomorrow night. I'm going to throw another feast for you two, and then I will tell you what it is that I am requesting. So they say, okay, and they go home, and during that night, the king has trouble sleeping. Imagine that. So he tells whoever his attendant is to come and read from the royal records. Just so happens that what the attendant reads from is the account of Mordecai saving the life of the king back way back when. And uh, anyways, King Ashwarosh asked the attendant, well, what was done for Mordecai? What should we do for him? He finds out that nothing was done as of yet. So the king asked, well, who is it that's over in the courtyard? Who is it that's hanging around that's nearby? Just so happens that Haman was out in the courtyard. So they go and they get Haman. They bring him to the king. And the king asked Haman, what is it that should be done to the person that helps the king out, that does a great thing for the king. And Haman answers, and he says, For the man whom the sovereign delights to value, let a royal robe be brought, which the sovereign has worn, and a horse on which the sovereign has ridden, one with a royal crest placed upon its head, and let this robe and horse be given into the hand of one of the sovereign's most noble princes, let them dress the man whom the sovereign delights to value, and make him ride on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it is done to the man whom the sovereign delights to value. And the sovereign said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have spoken, and do so for Mordechai the Yehudi, or Judean, who sits in the sovereign's gate. Let no word fail of all that you have spoken." Now, when the king first asked Haman what should be done for the man in whom the king delights, Haman, based on his ego, is thinking that the king is speaking of Haman. So he comes up with this great, elaborate, extravagant thing to do for who he thinks is himself. But, turns out, it's for the person that Haman really despises, Mordechai. You can just imagine the look on Haman's face when the king says this and tells him it's Mordechai. So, all this is done by Haman to Mordechai. And it's Haman that takes Mordechai and leads him on horseback through the city, saying all these things that the king told him to say. And again, you can just imagine the look on Haman's face as he's doing this and he goes through all the crowds and there's got to be other people there that know about this little tip that Haman has with Mordechai too, right? So all this is done the day after 
the first feast that Esther prepared. So, at the end of the second day, after Haman paraded Mordechai throughout the town, they go back to Esther for the second feast. And the king is there, Haman is there, Esther is there, and they feast, they have a good time, and then the king asks her, what is your petition, what is it that you would request of me? And that is when Esther tells the king about Haman's plot to kill all the Judeans, including her, and tells the king that she is actually Judean as well, and that this plot would kill her. Now remember, the king has a lot of favor for Esther. He chose her out of a plethora of women to be the queen. He told her that first night that he would give her up until up into even half the kingdom if she wanted. But Esther tells him about the plot and that all she asked for is her life and the life of her people. Very, very humble and noble of Esther. As we read in Esther 7, 6-8, And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman, then Haman was afraid before the sovereign and sovereignness, and the sovereign arising in his wrath from the feast of wine went into the palace garden, and Haman remained before sovereignness Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil had been decided against him by the sovereign. And when the sovereign returned from the palace garden to the place of the feast of wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the sovereign said, also to ravish the sovereigness while I am in the house. And as the word left the sovereign's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So after the king found out from Esther the plot against her and her people, he was upset. So he went out, kind of get a little breath, fresh air, left Haman and Esther in there by themselves. And when he comes back, Haman is pleading for his life and pleading with Esther, trying to save face and save himself somehow. But the way it looks to the king is that Haman is trying to take advantage of the queen. You know, so this enrages the king even more. So <coughs> then the king is told some other information. Here we read in... Esther 7, 9 through 10, and chapter 9, verse 13. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the sovereign, Also see the wooden structure, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordechai, who spoke good on behalf of the sovereign, is standing at the house of Haman. And the sovereign said, Impale him on it. And they hanged Haman on the wood in structure on the wooden structure. <coughs> Excuse me that he had prepared for Mordechai, and the sovereign's wrath abated. And Esther said, If it pleases, pleases the sovereign, let it be given to the Yehudim who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the wooden structure. So Mordechai had built, after he'd done this plotting and had it set in stone, Haman built gallows specifically for Mordechai, right? But after his plot is revealed by Esther and the king's thinking Haman is about to take advantage of the queen, the king learns about the gallows 
and he has Haman taken out and killed, hung on the gallows that Haman had actually built for Mordechai. Also, a custom that was commonly done back in the time is that once you find a traitor and you kill him, you also kill his lineage as well. This was done for Haman's ten sons. So the name and the lineage of Haman was utterly blotted out. No chance for coming back and doing some kind of family feud revenge, avenging, anything like that. So after the Jew, or sorry, after Haman is killed, his sons are killed, the decree then goes out for all the Judeans to rise up and fight back on that very day that the plot by Haman was made to kill all the Judeans. So all the Judeans rise up on that day. They kill the people who come against them. And then the next day they feast and they rest. And that is the initiation of Purim, celebrating the great power and foresight of Yahweh and what he did for the Judean people. Now, why is this important? We'll get to that in just a moment when we look at Messiah and Purim. But here's some interesting things to note about Purim. Some things that you may find rather interesting. In the book of Esther, you never once find the name of Yahweh. Throughout the rest of the Tanakh, you find the name Yahweh, yod heh or yod heh over 7,000 times, but not one single time in all the book of Esther, right? Remember, the theme here is kind of secrecy. So you never find the name of Yahweh in all the book of Esther. Esther kept her real name and her real lineage and ethnicity a secret, right? To a degree, Haman was trying to keep secret the complete details of his plot against the Judeans and Mordechai. So it's a complete theme here, which we're going to look at in just a little bit too. So keep that in mind. The book of Esther was also the last book to be canonized when they put the Tanakh together. Kind of interesting. It's also the only book of the Tanakh that's not found at the library of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, right? Where the Essenes lived. You won't find the book of Esther there. Purim is also, like we said before, it's a feast day, but it's not one of the seven Moedim that are established in the Torah, right? Like Pesach, Shavuot, First Fruits, uh, Tabernacles or Sukkot, Yom Kippurim, Yom Teruah, things like that. That's not one of the Moedim, but it is a feast day. I'll put it that way. Purim is a Hebrew word that is derived from a Persian word called Pur. Covered that earlier too. In more modern times, some interesting points. In 1946, remember how Haman and his 10 sons were hanged? Well, in 1946, 10 of Hitler's top associates were put to death by hanging for their war crimes. So, potential war crimes by Haman, and then actual war crimes by Hitler's officials, 
10 and 10, both hanged. Then in early 1953, Stalin was planning to deport most of the Jews that were left in Soviet Union and deport them to Siberia. But just before his plans came to fruition, he suffered a stroke and died a few days later. He suffered that stroke on the night of March 1st, 1953, which was the night after Purim that year. Interesting thing there as well. So there's other stuff that we could have included too, but this, this was the, some of the more notable ones I thought you guys might enjoy. Again, as we do with every drosh and every teaching, we always invite you to go out, do further research and study on your own. You'll find a lot more than what we've included here. And like always, be sure to let us know of anything that you may have found out so that we all may grow together. So what about Messiah and Purim? If it's not one of the seven established feast days, then how does Messiah, Yeshua, connect with Purim? Does it even mention Purim in the Brit Hadashah? Well, yes and no. Remember that theme of secrecy? Let's look at this real quick. In John 5, 1. After this, there was a festival of the Yehudim, and Yeshua went up to Yerushalayim. Okay, it says there was a festival, but what festival? Well, it doesn't tell us specifically, but notice here, the first point is that Yeshua went up to Yerushalayim for the festival. Most of the time, as you read through the Brit Hadashah, Yeshua is out in the countryside. He's healing, he's ministering, he's teaching, things like that. He goes up to the temple in Yerushalayim on generally special occasions, feast days or Moedim and Shabbat, things like that. But generally he's out in the countryside. So for this feast day or festival, he's going up to the city. So you know it's something of some importance, but it doesn't tell us specifically what this festival is, like it does in other places, like in John 6, 4. And the Pesach was near the festival of the Yehudim. So, certain festivals in Moedim tells us exactly what it is, like it does here with Pesach, but back in John 5, 1, it just tells us a festival. They're being secret about it, right? One could say. Interesting to think about, right? Most likely, it was Purim. It was already established way back in the time of Esther to be an annual observance. And so the Judeans kept that annually all the way up through Yeshua's time and even up until our day. And then John 5.1 tells us that there was a festival of the Yudim and Yeshua went up to Yerushalayim. Just interesting to think about, definitely. Which... I believe it was more than likely Purim. Now, connections between Messiah and Purim. As we learned, Haman cast lots to determine the date to annihilate the Jews. And then we see at the death and crucifixion of Yeshua that the soldiers cast lots to determine who would get what of Yeshua's clothing. Esther spent three days fasting. 
which probably would have also included three nights as well. But anyways, Yeshua was in the tomb for three days, three nights as well. The Judeans were on the verge of annihilation back in the story of Purim. Remember, Haman wanted to kill all of the Judeans because of his hatred for Mordechai. And Yeshua was a Jew from the tribe of Judah and from Judea. And so if Haman's plan had have worked out, if it had he got what he wanted, then there would have been no lineage for Yeshua to come from, right? All the Judeans would have been wiped out. And that is another aspect of the foresight of Yahweh and his great and mighty power to have things come about the way he wants them. So, even though things happen in our lives that are not really good, we can even classify them sometimes as bad, we have to remember a particular verse. Romans 8.28 And we know that all matters work together for good to those who love Elohim, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if this doesn't fit with the story of Purim, I don't know where it does. Because it not only fits for us, but definitely on the story of Purim. Now, everything that happened during the story of Purim was good. But it all worked together for good, as the verse says, for those who love Elohim. Right? Like Esther and Mordechai. And also, like for us. Bad things might happen in our lives. Bad things might be forecast. And not that everything is good, but all things work for good for those who love Elohim. So take that point as an example from Purim for application in your life today. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by Elohim and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for setting straight, for instruction in righteousness. Now like we said, even though Purim is not one of the seven established uh, feast days or Moedim from the Tanakh or from the Torah. It is a part of Scripture, and all Scripture is profitable. Okay, and when the Apostle Shaul or Paul wrote this to Timothy, what Scripture was he talking about? Was he talking about just the New Testament, that little small thing that Gideon's handouts you can put in your pocket and stuff like that? No, what they had back then was the Tanakh. The Brit Hadashah or New Testament wasn't completely compiled yet. So when he talks about all scriptures breathed out, he's talking about the Tanakh to include the book of Esther. So Esther is scripture. The story of Purim is scripture. And that's why we hold to the belief that the celebrating of the feast of Purim is it's good and it's something that we should do, but we're not willing to go so far as to say it's something that is commanded. Okay, does that make sense? Because it's not one of the seven commanded Moedim of the Torah, like Pesach or Sukkot, things like that. 
Very similar to Hanukkah, right? We went over that. You probably remember from the Hanukkah teaching. So there's the scripture, the history, Messiah and Purim, the background, all that good stuff. So now you've got a good foundation as to what Purim is, where it came from, who was involved. But you're asking yourself, if I wanted to celebrate it now, how would I do that? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to be getting into that. Now, first things first. Remember when Esther was about to go before the king to tell him about the plot that she fasted before? Remember she fasted for three days? Well, even today, there's a fast that goes on by some who choose to keep the fast before the celebration of Purim. Now, some keep it one day, some keep it three days, according to the way Esther did it. But suffice it to say that fasting is a part of the feast day. Again, not commanded, so you don't have to do the fast if you don't want to. But as we all know, fasting is good for you. Another thing that also goes along is during the celebration of Purim, during the days of Purim, there is the reading of the book of Esther from first verse to the last verse. Now, the book of Esther only has 10 chapters, and some of those chapters are pretty short, actually. We are going to be releasing a reading of the book of Esther, so definitely make sure to stay tuned for that. Make sure you're subscribed on all of our different platforms, whether that's a video platform like YouTube, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, all that good stuff, or whether it's an audio cast platform like iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Music, Amazon Music, or what have you, Spotify. Make sure you stay tuned for that because we do plan on releasing recorded readings of the Book of Esther so that when Purim gets here, You'll be able to listen to that as well, or you can just open up your Bibles and read for yourselves. But that is part of the celebration of Purim, is to read through the entire book of Esther. Also, a special thing that's made on Purim is things called Hamantaschen, or Haman's hats, right? So you take these Haman's hats, which are pastries filled with something gooey inside, usually something sweet, could be something not as sweet. But anyways, they're shaped in little triangles, which I still don't know why they get that shape from, but, you know, that's just the way they're made. They're called Hamantaschen, or Haman's hats. Haman's hats, rather. There's also the eating of seeds, nuts, green vegetables, beans, things like that. And as always, every time you have a feast or a feast day or a moedim, you are, of course, going to have challah, right? You can't forget the challah. Because who doesn't like challah? It's so good. Another thing is done. When the book of Esther or the story of Purim is told, they have these things called groggers. And what you see on the screen here is a grogger. Now, every time the name Haman comes up, everyone makes noise to kind of drown out the name of Haman, to blot out his name, in effect, right? So way back then, they killed him and his sons, and nowadays, we blot out his name by making noise whenever his name is read. 
Conversely, when the name of Mardukai is read or spoken, everyone cheers and claps and celebrates because Mardukai is one of the uh, main protagonists and stars of the Purim story, along with Esther. Another thing is done during the celebrating of Purim is the wearing of costumes. Okay, this is dressing up like characters from the story of Purim. Whether it's Esther, whether it's Haman, whether it's King Ashwarosh, whether it's Mardachai, uh, a soldier back during that time, just a regular person back during that time, or what have you. This dressing up like one of the scriptural characters from the story of Purim. Also, another thing that's commonly done on Purim for the celebration of Purim is giving to others, being charitable, not only to others, but also to the poor and needy, whether that's money, time, uh, helping, you can give food, whatever. Just being charitable and helping to others, the poor and the needy. Very, very common way of celebrating Purim. In addition, one of the greetings that you might say on Purim or for Purim is Hag Purim Sameach, right? And that pretty much translates to have a happy Purim holiday. So there you go. That's some of the things to do, but it's very important to go over this as well. Some things not to do. Some people during their celebration of Purim actually get anti-scriptural or anti-biblical. They break the Torah for their celebration of Purim. Okay. What I mean by that is that some people actually end up cross-dressing. And this is something we are specifically commanded by the Torah not to do. Deuteronomy 22.5 A woman does not wear that which pertains to a man, nor does a man put on a woman's garment, for whoever does this is an abomination to Yahweh your Elohim. Okay? So there are some people who, their men dress up like women for the celebration of Purim, and the women dress up like men. And this is not to be done, and this is not something we're telling you. This is something that Yahweh has commanded us not to do, to not cross-dress, not wear that which does not pertain to you. If you're a man, you don't wear women's clothing, ever, not even for Purim. If you're a woman, you don't wear men's clothing, ever, not even for Purim, okay? And it's very, very important to keep in mind that Purim is not the Hebrew uh, Halloween, okay? Dressing up is part of Purim, right? Dressing up as scriptural characters, but not dressing up as a member of the opposite sex gender and not dressing up as, you know, some cartoon character who has absolutely nothing to do with Purim, right? I've seen pictures of people dressing up as Batman, Superman, etc., for the celebration of Purim. And this is completely bonkers. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. How are you celebrating a feast day, something from scripture through something that absolutely doesn't exist. Okay. 
have fun. Have your sweets and your challah and your hamantashen and be charitable. Dress up as a scriptural character, but don't make a mockery of it. I guess that's the main point. Okay, cross-dressing, dressing up as cartoon characters, that's making a mockery of Purim and the power of Yahweh, the celebration of the power of Yahweh. Okay, have fun, celebrate Yahweh, glorify him, but don't make a mockery of him. So, in conclusion, the book of Esther and the events of Purim are scripture, as we said before, and they're still relevant to us today, as is all of scripture, both the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. It tells us to be faithful and courageous even during the darkest of times, regardless of what your gender is, right? You could be male or female, and you still have a great and important role to play. You're still important in the work of Yahweh, whether you are male or female, whether you come from the lowliest or most common people up to the high class people. You've got an important part to play in Yahweh's purposes. Never lose hope. Things might seem dark. Things might seem, you know, out of control and that there's nothing left that you can do and it's all downhill from here. But never lose hope because you might have been placed in your position for such a time as this to fulfill the purpose of Yahweh. And like Esther... We are each in a unique position so that we can help bring out good <clears throat> even out of the darkest of circumstances. We may not see the light. We may not see what we're supposed to be doing. But like Esther, all things work together for good to those who love Yahweh and strive to keep his commands. And like we said, in the book of Esther, the name of Yahweh is is not there, not even once. But we can tell or we can learn that even when Yahweh is not apparent, he's still there with us and he's still working for his good and for his glory. And that's the story of Purim. And that's just the God honest truth. I'd like to leave you with this famous quote from the book of Esther and the story of Purim. Mordechai tells Esther this, and who knows whether you have come to the rain for such a time as this. And that's something that can apply to all our lives. Thank you for joining us tonight for another edition of God Honest Truth live stream. We really hope that you learned something tonight about Purim or learned something new and different. If you did, let us know down in the comments what it is that you learned as well as say anything like hi or shalom. We always love to hear from you. While you're down there, make sure to hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, as well as ring the bell, and also hit that share button and share it around. In just a moment, we'll be doing the Aaronic Benediction. So if you have anyone there with you that you would like to have gathered next to you when we do that, go ahead and start gathering them together. And while you're doing that, we'll go ahead and just recheck one more time before we go on our live streams. So, 
Looking good. In case you didn't know, we are multi-streaming to YouTube, Twitch, and Odyssey, all three. Hopefully soon to be Rumble, but there's more testing to be done with that before we get into live streaming on four different platforms again. So let's go ahead and get to our Aaronic Benediction. Yivarikika Yahweh, Vayishmarecha, Yair Yahweh Panavilecha, Vihunecha, Yisaha Yahweh, Panavilecha, Vyasim Lecha, Shalom. May Yahweh bless you and guard you. May Yahweh make his face shed light upon you and be gracious unto you. May Yahweh lift up his face unto you and give you peace. Thank you once again for joining us tonight. We hope that your Shabbat is one of rest and relaxation and good time with friends and family. We hope this next upcoming week is filled with good food, good fortune, good friends, good health, good happiness. And above all, before we meet again next week, Make sure to take care of yourself, take care of each other. Shabbat Shalom and Shavua Tov.